Welcome podcast listeners, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. In this week's podcast, I'm not going to be the host. In an effort to include more cadets into the Modern War Institute and into the podcast more generally, I'm going to be handing over hosting duties to Cadet Mitchell McGill, who will be conducting our first cadet-led interview with Sebastian Younger. Mitchell is a member of Company D4, Class of 2018, originally from Greenville, Tennessee, and is a member of WKDT, the radio station here at West Point, where he works on sports broadcasting. Welcome to the Modern War Institute podcast. Today we'll be interviewing Sebastian Younger, the author of The Perfect Storm, War, and his most recent release, Tribe. He also made the films Restrepo and Korngal. Restrepo won several awards and was nominated for an Academy Award as Best Documentary. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not reflect the position of the United States government. This is the Modern War Institute podcast. So, uh, Mr. Younger, I appreciate you taking the time for this interview. Um, I just The first thing I want to ask is, what were your initial thoughts going into the Korangal Valley? Uh, well, like the guys, like the soldiers that I was with, I'd never heard of the Korangal. I thought all the fighting was down in Kandahar. And I anticipated that the Korangal would be really quiet and uninteresting, and that we'd be doing what always seems to happen in... In, in countries in the Middle East is the end of drinking a lot of tea with people. And uh, that's exactly what the soldiers worried would happen. These are airborne infantry. They wanted to get into it. And the thing that they really didn't want was a, a non-kinetic deployment. And um, they didn't need to worry about that. But they didn't know that when they got there, and neither did I. So so my initial thoughts were this is going to be a very sleepy, sleepy project. And then it went crazy. So and when Captain Kearney, uh, the interview during Restrepo, said, you know, he had heard this was a hotbed and it was, you know, billed as the most dangerous place on Earth, and then he said he didn't do any research, and from what it sounds like right there, you said, you know, it sounded like a soft place, but looking back on it, do you think it was, what do you think of him not doing any research about the area? Um, you know, I mean, I think that Kearney, like, any any officer, like most officers in the U.S. military, is incredibly well trained, and I, I think that they are trained to apply their um, their knowledge to virtually any any circumstance, any environment. And the specific details of the society in the Korangal itself, the sort of anthropo- the sort of anthropology of that society, as it were, um, I think became relevant as he had to deal with different power brokers and sort of manage relationships in the valley and all that stuff. Um, but in a sense, that's not something he had to figure out until he got there. And and I know that, like, um, and I'm not sure that's how much he could have even informed himself till he got there. I mean, there's the right left, right seat, left seat handoff. I'm sure he downloaded everything Tenth Mountain could give him. Um, and uh, so I don't. I know it sounds sort of shocking, but actually, you know, he, you know, he, he, he was he prepared for ten years for the Korangal without knowing it in some ways as an officer. And and uh, um, I, I've never done an assi- a, a newspaper assignment, a magazine assignment where I prepared. I mean, I always want, mean to prepare. I always plan on reading everything on the topic, and then it doesn't happen, and I read all that stuff afterwards. So I know I know exactly like where he was at with that. Okay, when you were there, what stood out to you most about the platoon, uh, second platoon of battle company? Um, 
I mean, frankly, I, w- I was I was really interested in it, the sort of demographics of it. Um, there was one African American. Um, I, th- I thought there would be more. Uh, uh, there was a lot of Latinos. Um, there were people from you know, Fiji and Guam and, you know, this, these sort of far-flung parts of the American experiment. Um, and uh, so I, I, I didn't, and there was a lot, you know, frankly, there was a lot of white kids from the suburbs. And I didn't, and it really, I didn't quite expect that. And I don't think that was actually um, the image that most of the civilians I know back home have of a combat unit. And the one African-American in the platoon uh, who I asked about it, his name was Jones, and I said, I asked, like, what's it like being on the only black guy in the platoon? And he's like, look, I mean, this is, these were his words, right? He was like, look, but black people don't want, don't want to get shot at out here. Like, they've joined the military to, to, to learn a trade and, you know, whatever. And he said, so, he's like, I'm the only one out here because, you know, I, I'm weird. And, uh, and, it's all the, and he's like, there's all these white dudes who want to experience combat, but, you know, like, that's their problem. And, uh, so I just, you know, that was, it, that ran counter to the, the, the public perception of what a combat unit is. And um, I thought that was really interesting. And I also, um, I, you know, I thought it was amazing how loyal the guys were to each other. And, you know, guys who don't know each other very well, and they're risking their lives for each other. And, um, and in some ways they're risking their lives for Afghanistan for a free Afghanistan and for for America and I just I just thought you know I went to college I didn't go to college with any guys like this like these are amazing people and some of them didn't even finish high school but they're amazing people and I was really very very moved immediately moved by the experience so obviously Korngal very dangerous can you explain to me like what's going on in your head and like your the emotions you felt when you would receive contacts from the enemy? I mean, most of the platoon was relieved, right? It's like, so it would, it would kick off, and everyone was like, all right, we're getting into it. I mean, it was like game day. And, um, and I, you know, I was out there to make a film and to understand combat, understand what, how people react under the stress of combat. And so when there was contact... You know, for my own journalistic reasons, I sort of had a similar reaction, like, all right, it, it's happening, and I'm going to document this. Um, some, well, I was never really scared in, co- well, I, once I was scared, but mostly I was never really scared in combat. Uh, most of the fear would happen beforehand, and, and, uh, and sort of the anxiety before something happened when we were pretty sure it was going to happen, and just sort of waiting for it to happen, be it a patrol down to a dangerous place, or hearing ICOM chatter that it's coming, and then, you know, you're just waiting for it. And, and that was always incredibly unnerving. But combat itself wasn't that bad. You know, one time I got really pinned down, and I was, I was lying on the ground, and they were shooting from above us, and I was trying to hide behind a little sapling that was literally the thickness of a, of a, uh, of a like, beer can. I mean, it was literally the <laughs> thickness of a can of Coke. And obviously, you can't hide behind a can of coke. And um, and bullets were hitting the dirt right behind my feet. And I was like, "Oh shit! It's only a matter of time." And uh, and then the next burst was somewhere else, and I was all right. But um, you know, that was a really awful moment. But the awful moments happen so quickly that you actually don't really have to deal with them. 
So combat, you know, death, and you, we see uh, Rock Avalanche. You have the focus on Sergeant Rugal uh, and his death. How did that? How did you see deaths affect the platoon, and then how did that also affect you personally? I, I wasn't there when Sergeant Rugal was killed. Tim was there. That was his trip. So I didn't see the immediate aftermath of it. Um, by the time I got out there, and you know, guys had died previously to that too. Um, you know, they're young men, and they and they heal up pretty quick. I didn't. There didn't seem to be a lasting consequence, except among really close friends, like when Restrepo was killed. Um, you know, I interviewed one of his best friends about it six months later, and 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 the guy started crying. So there was some real grief, if you pride, but the grief was not on the surface. Uh, you had to pride. You had to pry to get tapped down to that. You know, the guy. The guys didn't keep that. They didn't wear that on their sleeve. They were. They were. They were too busy, and the, you know, the stakes were too high out there to have, you know, be having feelings all the time. Sir, I'm curious to see uh, how you view the narration of death. So in, in the case of Restrepo, Sergeant Rugal is viewed as as a warrior, like the best fighter in the platoon. And how you, that's how he's remembered. How do you perceive the narration of death and how that that's the lasting image for a person's life? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a natural instinct to kind of lionize the dead. And um, they certainly did that. Um, they certainly did that with all the casualties out there. Um, uh, you know, I think I think the narrative that gets created around death is one that allows that's designed to allow other people to face the possibility of death, um, knowing that if it happens, that they themselves will be remembered in this way. It'll be all right. You know, I mean, I think what they're doing with the dead people is actually signaling to each other, like that'll be okay if it happens to you and if it happens to me. So they're they're modeling, they're sort of modeling. For each other. In your uh, recent book, yeah, recent release, Tribe, uh, you talk about homecoming and other things. And I'm curious to see, you know, you talk a lot about brotherhood in the platoon. And then they come back to almost a fractured society that's divided between race, religion, politics. And how do you, how do soldiers deal with it? Or how do we as um, Americans help them cope with their experiences in war? I mean, I think we can help veterans cope with their experiences in war by um, creating a more unified society for them to come back to. I mean, let's at least create something that was worth fighting for. I don't think the political system as we as it exists right now is worth fighting for. I mean, the basic ideas of democracy are, but the way those ideas are expressed right now in the two political parties in the current campaign, particularly the Republican campaign, and frankly, a certain amount of Hillary's um, conduct as well, um, I, 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 it's uh, hard to understand risking one's life for that. And yet that's what we ask people to do. So how can we help them? We can help them by uh, trying to act ethically and at least even in our political disagreements with some act with some unity of purpose. We don't talk with contempt about the president. You know? We don't talk with contempt about segments of the population. We don't allow politicians to be, be to mock and deride each other and and uh, and lie. I mean, I, you know, it's like when you start allowing that, it puts veterans in the position of having 
risked their lives, maybe suffered wounds, and certainly suffered the losses of their brothers in the service of something that's sort of craven and cheap. And, and that's, a, that's its own psychological hardship. We're better than that. Do you think uh, modern American society has become numb to war, as we've seen an extended amounts of conflict since 2001? I mean, I think American society has been come, has become removed from war, which is different from numb. Um, it's not experiencing the war in any direct way, um, and it's certainly not experiencing any sacrifices for the war. So why should it, why should it care about the war? I mean, that's just not human. I mean, it, you you care about things that you make sacrifices for or that you're affected by, and neither is happening with the population. So. How could they care? Why would they care? How can they? Like, it, 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 we, we need to create, somehow, create a situation where the public is involved in the war in a material way, in a spiritual way. The veteran town hall idea would do that community by community. Uh, a war tax would do that, um, you know, fiscally. It would connect the public to the reality of war, like this, this shit is coming out of your paycheck. And if you don't like it, then then let's have a conversation about not having a war. But when you put it all on a credit card, you, you allow politicians to actually dodge hard questions from their constituents about whether this is necessary or not. Uh, sir, could you briefly explain uh, what you mean by veteran town hall? Um, so I had this idea, a model on... Um, uh, something common to many of the American Indian tribes, um, which is a process of returning veterans to the community. And, it, and often, among other things, it involves the warrior having a chance to um, describe and sing and dance and recount what they did, their exploits on the battlefield in defense of their community. And they do that in front of the whole community. And there is something very powerful and cathartic about addressing your community and and unburdening yourself of the truth, of your feelings. Uh, it's one of the reasons AA works, um, to get, help people to stop drinking. Uh, individual therapy does not help people stop drinking, but AA does because it's a group experience. It's a shared cathartic experience. So in Veterans Town Halls, um, every Veterans Day, uh, my idea is, and we've done this, I did it with Representative Seth Moulton, Democrat of Massachusetts, last year in um, 2015. Uh, every Veterans Day, the town halls all, all across the country would get unlocked, opened up. They're not doing any business that day, so there's no harm done. Open them up, turn on the PA system, and veterans of any war have the right to stand up for 10 minutes to talk about what the war, what they did in the war and what it felt like to do that, what it felt like to, um, to fight for this country. And war being the messy thing that it is, some veterans are going to stand up and say that it was the high point of their life. They're incredibly proud of their service and, they, and, and that, the, they, that they missed the war. And that's going to make liberals, liberals in the audience um, uncomfortable. And other people are going to stand up and be in an absolute rage about the war that they were forced to fight. And that's going to make conservatives uncomfortable. And some people will stand up and just cry. And that's going to make everyone uncomfortable because they're crying about their lost brothers that they will never get back. And that's also a war. And um, if you say that you support the troops, 
That means showing up at town hall to hear them out. This isn't a patriotic rally. It's not an anti-war rally. It's just a chance for veterans to tell the public that they fought for, their community, what it felt like to fight for them, what it cost them, what they, what, what they got from it, um, what they regret, what they're proud of, whatever it is. And you'll get some amazing stories. Um, one older woman stood up and said she'd fought in Vietnam as a man and had come back and gotten a sex change. Another guy was was from South Sudan, this tall, handsome African guy uh, with a heavy African accent. And he'd come here as a child refugee from the war in Sudan. 9-11 uh, happened, and he realized that, you know, this stuff was happening all over again. He was Christian, and, and his area of Sudan was attacked by the uh, Muslim militias from the north. And 9-11 happened, and he realized, wow, it's happening all over again. Uh, well, these people are still trying to kill me. And so he joined the military and served as a translator in, in some very, very bloody stuff in Baghdad. Um, and, uh, you know, he's American too. I mean, it's just, we're, you know, it's like, as Walt Whitman said, we contain multitudes, and we truly do. And you will see that at a Veterans Town Hall if you, if you, if you, do, if you, um, if you arrange for one. It doesn't cost anything. It's incredibly simple to do. Um, and uh, if you go to my website, sebastianyounger.com, there's a page called Veteran Town Hall, and it shows you, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel, it shows you how to do it, it tells you how to do it. Um, you don't have to be in the military, you can be a civilian, it doesn't matter, you just, just go do it. And my hope, my dream is that eventually, in every town hall in this country, veterans will have the opportunity to address their community. All right, uh, we appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership. Thank you.